0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett coming to you from the Hickory Ridge Community Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. And this is the Monday broadcast. So glad that you're joining us today. And every Monday, I try to do a recap as to what happened at Hickory Ridge Community Church over the weekend. And every weekend, we are seeing God do incredible things. It seems like every Sunday, we have new people visiting our church and being part of the fellowship. And we are so glad that God is sending for. The harvest. God is sending forth laborers so that we can go out there and grab the harvest. And I want you to know that we would love to have you be part of our church family. We are located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard, south on the Hickory section of Chesapeake. Come on and join us at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning for drive in church, or you can come on inside at 11 o'clock. We would love to see you, love to worship with you. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. So come on and join us, okay? Well, today I want to talk to you about this subject of change, and uh, this is actually part nine of the series that we're doing on change. You know, change is a difficult thing. I was thinking about why do we make the changes that we make in our lives? You know, sometimes we make a change because we're forced to make a change. Uh, For example, going through this coronavirus, we have been forced to make a lot of changes. Uh, We changed what we wear as far as what we wear on our face when we go to places, uh, public places. And uh, we've made a lot of change in how we wash our hands and how we take care of some personal sanitary issues, uh, all because of this thing called the coronavirus. So many other things happen in our lives because we are forced to make changes. Listen, when you get married, I want you to know that your life is going to be changing. When you have a family, things really change. Now, when my wife and I got married almost 32 years ago, I got to tell you, uh, when we first got married... Uh, There were some changes that took place, but nothing really compared to the great changes that took place when we started having those children. I tell you what, when you have children, you realize just how selfish you are. You realize just how busy your life can become, and you realize just how life can be so uncertain and how things are constantly in chaos, and uh, children are a blessing from the Lord. So don't take me wrong. I love my kids. I thank the Lord for them, but it really had made some significant changes in our lives as a result of having children. Well, let's talk about why we change and how we can change. Sometimes we change because we just get sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was talking to a guy yesterday, and and he's kind of really frustrated with his life, and he's really feeling like he's not making the the strides that he wants to make in his life, and he has these setbacks. And uh, as a result of these setbacks, he feels like he needs to make some changes, and so I gave him some things that I thought would help him. And uh, I find that one of the best things that can help you if you really want to make a change in your life is bring people that will keep you accountable. I'm talking about people that ask you the tough questions, right? Uh, the people can ask that, that ask you, well, how are you doing? Uh, and not just as a polite gesture, but they actually, well, how are you really doing, okay? And uh, accountability will help you to make the changes that you really need to make. I found another thing that really has helped me to change is by being in God's Word. You know, I went through a bout of discouragement not too long ago, and as a result of this discouragement, I said, you know what? I need to spend more time in the Word. And, and I discovered that I was spending a lot of time reading books about the Bible, which is great, you know, great biographies of men and women of God. Uh, these are incredible resources of encouragement. But I found that nothing can keep me centered Nothing can keep me focused. Nothing can give me the, the wisdom that I need more than God's word. So today I want to look at Galatians chapter number two. Galatians chapter number two. We're talking about what goes through when we make changes. And if you're going to make changes in your life, you've got to have some grit, right? You've got to have some determination. And uh, look at the things in your life that really are going to make a positive difference in your life and focus on those. There was an Italian economist by the name of Falretto Pareto, and he coined this rule called the 80-20 rule which basically means that most of the results in our lives, of any situation in our lives, 80% of those results that are changed are driven by the 20% of our lives. The 80-20 rule is this. 20% of what you do during your business day, 20% of what you do with your life yields 80% of the results. And this is what he came up with. Here's an example. 20% of the input creates 80% of the result. 20% 20% of the workers produce 80% of the results. In other words, when you are uh, at a work environment, you have 20% of those workers that are really doing 80% of the work. And I hope that you're part of that 20%. As a believer in Christ, I hope that you are the most productive person. I hope that you're the best, I uh, have the best work ethic, and I hope you're a high producer. 20% of the customers create 80% of your income. Now, I discovered this was true. Uh, when I was in sales, when we started Hickory Ridge Community Church, I had a sales job, and I learned something about my customers. Uh, 80% of my revenue or my profits or my commission came from 20% of my customers. I also discovered that 20% in a church environment, 20% of the people do 80% of the serving, do 80% of the giving, and uh, are really the movers and shakers are about 20% of the people within your church. So the question is, how am I working this 20% of my life that is causing the most amount of change? Uh, This would be the most important percentage of your life. I would include in this part of my life my family, uh, my church, uh, my work relationships. Uh, Those are the 20% areas of my life. How am I looking at those areas and how am I investing in those areas? So, if change is going to take place, we've got to be wise about the areas that we work in our lives. You only you only have a hundred and sixty-eight hours in a week. Now that's not very many hours when you think about the course of a week. How are you investing that time in your week? So, Paul is writing to the Galatian believers. Uh, it's actually a series of churches. Uh, Ordinarily, when Paul wrote a book, for example, the book of Romans, that was written to the church at Rome, uh, the book of Galatians is plural. It wasn't just one church at Galatia. It was a series of churches uh, that he had been writing to. And the reason that he is writing to them is because he discovered that they made some really good changes and that they accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their lives were radically changed by the power of the gospel of Christ. Paul understood that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also unto the Greek. Paul saw this change take place in these churches of Galatia. Many of them he had started. Many of them he had a profound influence upon them. But it discovered that very quickly, they were turning from the truth of the gospel. They were adopting and embracing another gospel, which Paul says was really no gospel at all. You see, false teachers were creeping into the church and teaching that you could be saved by works and by grace. Paul is now addressing this, and he wants the church to be filled with determination to fight for the gospel. Realizing that the gospel is what's going to bring about the change that we so want in our lives. It is going to take some grit and determination if you're going to see the gospel do a mighty work in you. Now notice what I said. I didn't say that we are going to work for the gospel, but I say when the gospel is in us, our work changes. In other words, we no longer are striving to earn salvation. We are working hard because we have already received salvation. So let's pick up Galatians chapter 2. In chapter number 1, we discover that Paul is addressing the fact that false teachers are coming in to the churches of Galatia and they're preaching another gospel. In chapter number 2, he is now going to gently oppose those who are teaching this false doctrine. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verse number 1. I went in response to a revelation... And meeting privately with these esteemed as leaders, I presented it to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So let's stop right there. Paul is now addressing those leaders who are teaching false doctrine. He's meeting with them privately, and he's esteeming them as leaders. So he's going in gently. He's not going in there, uh, you know, with a billy club. He is coming in gently because he has respect for them. You know, sometimes when people get off on the wrong track, sometimes it's an honest mistake. Uh, sometimes it's not like they determined to go off on the right track. Sometimes they honestly believe something that was not true. They get caught up in something. So Paul presented them with this argument, and he does it in a gentle way. Uh, so if you're going to be opposed by somebody. Make sure as you respond to that person that you respond to them gently. Don't be like the bull in a china closet. Uh, Be gentle. Be firm, but be gentle. Paul says, I wanted to make sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Now, Now, Paul is confronting them. He's doing it with gentleness. He's doing it with respect but he wanted to make sure that as he's giving them the gospel, he likens it to a race. And he says, I didn't want to feel like I was wasting my time. I want to make sure that the message was clearly understood. But he says, yet even Titus, who was with me, and here's we discover what was happening. He was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So we discover here what is being added to the gospel is that they were requiring Gentiles as they were coming into the church to now be circumcised. Now, now this is an important point for us to understand. There is a matter that is rising within the church, and this matter arose, and false believers had infiltrated the ranks, and they were spying on the freedom that they had found in Christ. They discovered that the church was living in freedom, and these were Jewish non-believers that were coming into the church, and they were saying, now listen, if you guys truly are quote-unquote believers, you should be circumcised. In other words, you are a believer because you are circumcised. Now Paul, as he's addressing this, is very firm. He is realizing that what is taking place is legalism. Now, there's two things that will destroy a church. One is legalism. Legalism is adding to the faith. All right, you're you're going to be saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and then you're going to get circumcised. Or then you're going to do a certain act because you have been redeemed. It is adding to salvation. That is what we would call legalism. Now, Now, liberalism is just as bad. Legalism adds to the faith. Liberalism is taking away from the faith. I think that we have a greater struggle in a church today with liberalism than we do with legalism. I don't think that legalism for most churches is a big problem. I think that many churches now are embracing a more of a liberal theology that would say, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Uh, Just come on in and be part of what we are doing here. Belief and doctrine are essential, and Paul is addressing both of these. Now, as you look at this whole subject of being gentle when opposed. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to talk about people and how difficult it is to talk to people? Paul's fear was the gospel was being distorted and that his teaching was in vain. He felt like he was investing heavily in sound doctrine, but he was feeling like they're not receiving that message. And if they don't understand the truth about the gospel of salvation, then they're going to misunderstand it. they're going to misconstrue much doctrine. they were, in essence saying that a Christian must be circumcised to be a Christian. So if you were a Jew, this sounded like a great idea because you were already circumcised on the 8th A. That's one of the ways that you were proven that you were a sincere Jew is that you were circumcised on the 8th A. Now, that didn't make you a Christian, uh, but that was a rite of passage that your parents performed on you as a Jew. It was actually a symbol of the faith. As a result of that, that crept into the church, and those who are Gentiles are looking at this and saying, well, what's the big deal about being circumcised? Why should I be circumcised in order to be a follower of Christ? Circumcision then became this us versus them, causing division within the church. Now, whenever you think about false doctrine, you've got to realize there's always a a reason that is driving this false doctrine. Uh, It's very rare that false doctrine is just arbitrary. We discover that those who are of the Jewish faith understood what the rite of circumcision was all about. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter number 17. God said to Abraham, I have this covenant. You shall keep my covenant and the descendants that after you throughout the generations will keep this covenant. And as a earmark or as a proof that you're keeping that covenant, that covenant relationship that God had entered into uh, with Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the uh, sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, we discover that the way they were to show they believed in that covenant is that every male of your family shall be circumcised. They shall be circumcised on the eighth day. The flesh of their foreskin was to be circumcised. It shall be a covenant in your flesh— As an everlasting covenant. Any male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, as we see here, uh, the original intent of being circumcised was to show that you are a recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when Jesus came, he says, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Abraham obeyed the Lord and circumcised his son Isaac for a very special reason. All Jews were circumcised, all male Jews were circumcised on the eighth day in Old Testament times as a proof of the covenant. Now, when we look at this, we discover that as they're coming into the fulfillment of the New Testament, circumcision is no longer required. And now it's a good idea, probably, to circumcise, perhaps for health reasons, but is now on the lines of a personal choice, not as an example that you have been a recipient of the covenant, because Christ fulfilled the law. Now, this is a difficult subject, because as you look at this subject deeply, uh, and we look at all of the evidence found in the New Testament regarding this matter of circumcision, we discover that Titus, for example— He was circumcised, defending the freedom that that he had in Christ, Uh, while Timothy was also uh, in this situation, and Timothy was circumcised because he was from a Jewish family, where Titus, however, was in a different situation. And so as we look at this, we must be gentle, and Paul understood this whole subject, and he says, I'm going to draw the line when you say that you must be circumcised. In order to be born again, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. So, Paul was gentle, bringing about this change in their understanding of the gospel. The second thing that we see about Paul is that he had respect for God's word and for authority. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, picking up verse number 6. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. Why? Because God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So here Paul is being respectful of God's word and those who are in authority. And he's reminding them that God does not show favoritism. Those within the church that were showing favoritism were going contrary to God's word. And so Paul says, we must be like God and not showing favoritism. At the same token, Paul understood that he had been trusted with the task of preaching the gospel to those who were uncircumcised. Uh, That was his primary mission field, uh, the Gentiles. But he also knew that Peter had been commissioned to preach to the Jews, those who were already circumcised. We discover here that Peter, as an apostle to the circumcised, was also to work with him as an apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, they crossed lines. They didn't just say, okay, Paul, you're going to exclusively reach the Gentiles. Peter, you're going to exclusively reach the Jews. No, they would reach anybody. You know, as you think about that, each one of us has unique giftings, and we can reach different people. God places us strategically in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment, in our communities, so that we can reach people with the gospel. You know, you're going to reach some people with the gospel that I will never be able to reach, and I'm going to reach some people that you will never, ever be able to reach. But we must work together in sharing the gospel. As we look at this respect for God's word and God's authority, I want to spend just a moment talking about favoritism. You know, according to Webster's Dictionary, favoritism is that unfair practice of treating someone or some people better than others. Uh, The Greek word translated favoritism found in James chapter 2 literally means to receive according to the face. In other words, to show favoritism is to make judgments about people on the basis of their outward appearance. There are three reasons that the Bible gives as to why we should not show favoritism. The Bible prohibits favoritism. Why? Because favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Impartiality is an attribute of God. He is absolutely and totally impartial in dealing with people. You see, many times as we look at this issue that we are battling, for example, with racism, racism really is not a skin issue. It's really a sin issue. We are looking at somebody based upon their skin color, and we are making a favoritism or a lack of favoritism to that person based on something that is totally out of their control. What do you think about race? Race is very sacred. God created the races. The different skin tones and different cultures that we live in is really a gift that is given to us from God. We ought to be able to celebrate these differences, realizing that God is such a unique God that He created us very special. And every one of us has a, a different skin tone. and None of us have the exact same skin tone. Every one of us have different backgrounds, different cultures. We should celebrate these things because God created us very special. You see, favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is not showing partiality, Deuteronomy 10, 17 says. Romans 2, 11, Paul is very specific and says, For there is no favoritism with God. Ephesians 6, 9 says the exact same thing. There is no favoritism with him. Acts 10, 34 says, Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. You see, favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. It goes contrary to the gospel. The gospel is made available to whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Here's the second reason that we should be avoiding favoritism. Not only is it inconsistent with God's character, but number two, favoritism is contrary to what God values. Now, James addresses this in, in James chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and he talks about believers who would give preferential treatment to the rich. And as we look at this kind of behavior, what would motivate that kind of behavior? It is that the rich tend to be able to help us more, so we favor them. James reminds us that we should not value people based upon their bottom line. We value them because they are created in the image of God. Look how James puts it in James chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. He says, didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him, yet you have dishonored the poor. They were acting in a way that was contrary to what God values. In a message on the evil of favoritism in the church, this is what John MacArthur said. We tend to put everyone in the same kind of stratified category, higher or lower than other people. It has to do with their looks, It has to do with their wardrobe. It has to do with the kind of car they drive, the kind of house they live in. Sometimes it has to do with their race. Sometimes with their social status. Sometimes outward characteristics of personality. All of those things with God are non-issues. They are of no significance at all. They mean absolutely nothing to Him. What well, we've learned so far today that favoritism is contrary to what God values. Favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. And there's one final point that we must talk about when we talk about this matter of favoritism. Did you know that favoritism is actually called a sin? James makes this very clear. It's not simply I'm being disrespectful to somebody. It is a sin against God. James 2 9 says, If you show favoritism, you commit sin. It is a sin because it is contrary to the character and to the command of God. Favoritism is sin. There is no place for it in the hearts of God's people, and certainly no place for it within God's church. Well, I hope you join me tomorrow as we look at part two of how to have grit, how to have determination how to have the change that God wants you to make in your life. I hope you'll tune in tomorrow at the same time. And I'm going to pray that God will give you some wisdom as you navigate through the changes that he wants you to make. So Lord, we come before you. We thank you for your word that is quick and powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword. May we rest well tonight so that we wake up tomorrow ready to serve you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3220 South Battlefield Boulevard, Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, you go to our website at www.hrcc7.org. No matter what you're going through, remember, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.